everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. Today's guest is one that I've been looking forward to since I started the podcast. He occupies way more uh, space in my day-to-day uh, conscious than he probably realizes. He's kind of the... Uh, the uh, standard to which I hold myself and fail miserably on a recurring basis, but I'm, I'm setting this up so that you can't live up to what the expectations are. But on today's show, we have Mike Lundy. Thank you for coming by, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I was surprised that I was able to get you in within the same week that I asked you. I thought you were probably booking like six to 12 months out no, at this point. No, no, not that. Not, not nearly as popular as you think I am. Yeah. Now, just before I go too far, because I think the way I drive home almost every day is I take t- uh, Florida down, or um, Tampa down to Cass and then cut over to Cass, and I see that crazy construction going on in front of your office. How is that? Is that so? It's nuts. Yeah. Is I mean, it, one day they just showed up and ripped up the street and closed everything. They didn't talk to you about it beforehand. Yeah. You know, supposedly there was some notice given, but it's probably one of the million pieces of mail that, that you know you, you don't get to every day. And exactly. the next thing you know, there's no street. So. Well, you have just an amazing office, uh, and, and as I understand it, your <clears throat> wife played a big part in designing at least the interior of that office. Is that right? Yes. My, I think my wife's one of her great passions is interior design and she did a phenomenal job it, the it is ridiculous i mean the conference room's beautiful the little waiting area you have that great piece of art on the wall by the way i'm gonna kiss mike's butt pretty much this whole interview so if you don't like it then you know listen to the matt lundy interview but uh in any event no it's it's just a gorgeous off now when i met you you were at the place that was right down by dats correct but that wasn't the place you started in right no we started in a little like bungalow house on howard it was across from what was then uh, mangroves. You have told me the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At one point, we went to lunch, and you were telling me about you in in the in the salad days. You and Ben Older's desks pushed up against each other, working into the in a loft. In I a mean, loft, we, we were we were renting the loft space above the office of a guy named Steve Lowenthal, who was successful, very successful at the time, and has since passed away. But he was very generous with us and gave us his loft space for, you know, some dirt cheap a price. Song, yeah. And it had this tiny little rickety uh, spiral staircase that we had to come up and down. And it was Well, Matt said was he was downstairs. Ridiculous. I think Matt said he was downstairs and yeah. you were upstairs and you guys would like drop bleedings Matt, down to him. Matt and... was our first administrative assistant uh, during his summers during college. We would, we would bring him on as our assistant and just laugh all day long. We would throw things down off the balcony to him and... He would race around the corner to try and catch it and would dive across the floor. I mean, we were like, you know, frat boys starting a law firm. Now, until I met him, I thought you guys were the same age. I didn't realize he was younger to, to a good degree. Eight years. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I don't think I knew him when he was working with you. I've only ever known him as the quadro guy. And so uh, until he actually came in, my the whole interaction with him was text messaging and Facebooking. We uh, share a love of some basketball and music, yeah. so we talk often about that. Um, now, one of the things that has we're we're about the same age. I'll be forty five in December, and I think you're a few months older. I'll be right? forty six in December. Okay, so we're we're within a year of each other, and what you've accomplished in your forty six years is, uh, I I can't find another example of it, at least locally. I'm I'm sure in the in the nation it's done, but you I was I was thinking in anticipation of this interview where I'd put your firm locally. And really, I'd put it at the top. I mean, as far as the, I don't know if you call it silk stocking or bigger bigger ticket law firms, I mean, it's really kind of you guys, uh, 
Alex uh, uh, Black Caballero. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm getting the name wrong. Uh, Harris Hunt and Durr. I don't know. Is is Solomon Trop doing as much family law as I used to? I know Matt's still there, but yeah, I mean Sandy still does family law, and Matt does family law, and there's a guy over there. I'm blanking on his name who kind of dabbles in and out. But I mean, really, you're, you're kind of the tip of the spear, and uh, you know, I'm I'm a child. I'm an immature child who can't balance a checkbook. I eat like shit. I don't exercise. I spend money stupidly, and you've kind of built this empire. So this is this gets back to the neuroses that you've caused in my life. Um, but I know a little bit of the story, but I'm going to ask you about it anyway. So you didn't originally go into family law. You did securities work for a while. Is that true? Yeah. When I first came out of law school, I Which, by the way, where did you go to law school? University of Miami. And then where did you go to undergrad? I went to Yale That's undergrad. the one I'm looking for. Yeah. That's, that's probably a big part of the difference, but keep going. Yeah. Well, you know, people have a lot of preconceived ideas about what that really means, but... Well, Kushner um, went to one of those, so I'm not going to go too crazy about, you know, the accomplishment. He? he went to Harvard, didn't oh, he? Oh, he did? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not part of his fan club, I can (laughs) honestly say. But, um, yeah, I mean, I came out of law school and did the kind of typical big law firm thing. I, You know, I thought I would just be on that track because I was naive and didn't really know better. And it did not take very long for me to realize that was not for me. And so by the time I was about three years into practice, I was in New York. I was doing M&A, like mergers and acquisitions and securities work for giant, giant, like publicly traded companies. You weren't married yet, were you? Uh, no. Okay, were you well, no, dating? Well, no, I, I had a very short uh, starter marriage. Oh, did you? At that time. I didn't know that. That had a quick end with, um, you know, no real divorce issues, yeah, yeah, no yeah. children, yeah. no nothing. No anchors. And, uh, and then I left New York and came down and started with Ben, and we were off to the races. And I was just as naive about starting in our own practice as I was when I started practicing at a big firm, and we didn't know what the hell we were doing, and we really ran around to other lawyers just begging for work. Now, Ben, you knew from college or law, law school? Law school. Okay. Were you guys the same class? or Same class. We were study partners. I gave him a virtual nervous breakdown in our first year when we were studying. How'd you do that? You, I mean, we were Knowing just, more? Or? Yeah, we were just studying, and I was memorizing. I mean, law school, your first year is just memorizing everything. Right. right. And I was very good at memorizing, and Ben was decent at memorizing, but not as good, and I think it really made him a little crazy. Um, but Ben was my comic relief. Yeah, and uh, I've never met different. him, but I've always appreciated him by far. I, I, I'm an amateur musician, and I know that he's probably a little bit more advanced than that, and he's into that big time. But I've, I've seen him in the hallways. I've never said hello to him or even shook shake his hand. He's a good dude, and we've had a lot of good times together. We used to have a lot more good times together before we were, you know, in the real world. Encumbered. Here. But uh, his first passion is definitely music. Yeah, and he's a great musician and a great he plays singer. bass, doesn't he? He plays a lot of things, actually. Okay. He plays bass, he plays guitar, he can play a little congas, he plays other drums, he can play around on keys. I mean, he really is a very musically talented guy. Well, one of the things that's been amazing about that, and I've been a member of a few partnerships up to this point, is the longevity of a partnership historically is about one or two years. So the fact that you guys have been able to stay in a partnership for how long has it been since you guys opened your doors? Since January 1st, 2003, and it has evolved a lot. And I think the I would credit the longevity of this partnership to our ability to be really honest and transparent with each other. So you guys can you know, mix it up, trade paint, and not get yep. hurt feelings. Yep. And-, and when things needed to change, we were both open to discussion, and changes were made, and we moved on. Now, was the idea from the outset family law, or was that something you guys kind of... You know, we joked around it was rent law, right? Whatever rent, paid yeah, the rent. Threshold, right? whatever, who the walks joke, through the door. But I think we very quickly realized that there was a lot of family law work out there that people were sending out. 
No one wants to do it. So you know what? I think of... the, the secret to it was we knew that we could solicit business directly from lawyers. Right. And that you could not solicit business directly from non-lawyers. Right. right? right. And so we just went around to lawyers and said, you know, what can you send us? We got family law pretty quickly. And I realized that it was actually a, a great segue from what I had done before because I knew how to read financial statements financial and tax returns affidavits and those and... types of things. And so we gravitated towards that. That gravitated towards us. And once we decided, we probably committed about a year after we started, we're going to be family law lawyers. And once we made that commitment, we just started sprinting. Right. And we just took off from there. Well, as far as the emphasis, so a couple things that are interesting to me about that. First is, like me, you didn't work for another family law attorney before you started. So effectively, you taught it to yourself, right? 100% taught it to ourselves. And probably the number one thing that we did that helped us was we would just go to court and yeah. watch. Yeah, well, that's definitely helpful. Who were the big dogs at that time that you can recall? Wow. So going all the way back, I mean, I always, you could you could get so much from just watching the judges first and foremost yeah. and how they addressed issues and how they approached the proceedings. You know, back then there's a whole so much older judges bench. Didn't exist. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And uh and then, you know, lawyer wise, I mean Ron Reed oh, was somebody sure. Ron I Reed. really just respected so He's much and learned guy. so much from um, he gave me one of the greatest compliments when he retired. He told me that I was the reason that he retired because he couldn't deal with me anymore. So well, <laughs> there's, but, a, there's a line of and, those people probably. And but then, yeah. I mean, you know, Sandy Solomon's been around and Nancy's been around. And obviously, you know, back then there was uh, Mason Black and Caballero. Yeah. And I think Steve Sessoms was still in the mix. Yeah. And a couple of them are still around. And um, Did you ever watch Arnie Levine or have anything with Arnie had Levine? Many, many proceedings against Arnie. I know he just passed away. Did he really? He just passed away. I did not know that. I think he's either last week or the week before. Oh my God, I had no idea. Or 89 years I was old. in the building, the Barristers building with him, and right up to the end, he was, he always, I don't know if you're a Simpsons fan, but he always reminded me of Monty Burns. He was always oh, kind of yeah. like, you know, the puppet master and what just a character. Just I mean, a, and, but he was brilliant in yeah, the courtroom, and yeah. I learned a lot from him. I probably more than anything else, I learned composure from him. He never composure got, from Arnie Levine, absolutely. who legend Arnie, has it through a cup of coffee in somebody's face. Yes, and, <laughs> but Arnie never did anything impulsively. Yeah, he actually always knew what he was doing. That's sort of what made him so dangerous. When he was the acting out, it was intentional. Yeah, yeah. And man, he could cross-examine as well as anybody I ever saw. Well, if Arnie Levine was the devil on one shoulder, I, I would submit, and I don't know if it would be the case for you, but the angel on the other, who my wife worked for for a year when she was at Sandy's office, was Robert Tropp. Did you ever get to... I did. I had a couple of cases against uh, Bob, and he was a also a real character. Yeah. Um, she, you know, he would do this thing. I still remember. So Dina started around the time that Matt was there, and... People would come in for a consult, and at the end of the consult, he'd, he'd ask the assistant to come in, and they'd come in and say, would you get me uh, the name of three attorneys for this person? And he'd say, I, I don't think you can afford me. I don't know that I'm right for you guys, so here's the name of three other attorneys that you could call. And then right away, he was all that they could see. Of you know, course. just blinders of on. Course. Robert had to be the person. It didn't matter how much they were charged or whatever else. And then the other thing that I loved, and I still use to this day, is you don't pay me to tell you what you want to hear. You pay me to t pay me pay me to tell you what you need to hear, That's right. and I use that one daily because you know a lot of people. I don't feel like you're on my side, or I don't feel like you're advocating for me, and you got to kind of say, you know, it doesn't do any justice to blow smoke up your skirt and tell you what you want. Well, hear. and I'll tell you, to me, that really has been part of the recipe of our secret sauce. Is you know, you have got to give that kind of frank advice to somebody on day one. If you start uh, 
you know, giving expectations that cannot be met at the end of the case. You're just making your job harder and harder. And you're setting the client up for failure. You're setting yourself up for failure. And what you're going to find, I believe, is that that person is going to be pissed off when the case is over and you're not going to get any more business from them. I, it, 100%. And, you know, that's a big thing that, you know, I always have to remind myself is these people are marketers for you in, in a weird way. Every one of your clients are out in the community. And what are they saying about you? Good things or bad things? And you have... Not complete control over that, but you have a good deal of control over that. So to the extent that you can, you really got to kind of... Yeah, and I'll also tell you that the people who send me the most business, in my experience, are the people who did not have some giant nuclear trial, you know, big dramatic experience. They're the people who, you know, in in six or eight months, you you just got it done. Well, no one's happy after the big nuclear trials, generally speaking. I mean, very rarely is there a grand slam at the end of those. And you know what... What's crazy to me about those big trials is when people win, they feel like they deserved it, like they were entitled to it. When yeah. they actually win, which is yeah. a hard concept. To so that wasn't you. That was that was yeah, just right, right. life. Life. Right. I was did. entitled to that. And right. if they lose, it's your fault. That's right. right? So, That's right. Yep. So another part, and there's there's, I'm not going to give the names. I'm going to give the names of one of the attorneys. But then there's a, there's two Mike Lundy stories that I love to tell. One I'm not going to tell the name of. The other one I will. But we'll get there in a moment. Moment. But. Equally as impressive to me, if not more impressive to me than the uh, family law part of your firm is the infrastructure, just the business model, because it, it I don't know if that was luck, if that was by design, if that was guesswork and it played out, if you had someone helping you, but you've built up, I mean, this. how many attorneys do you guys have now? Uh, you know, I, I think about 22 or 23. I and, may be off by a couple. And at some where along the way, Elder and Lundy added Alvarez, who's my wife's cousin's old partner, Anthony Garcia. Right. So I know he does civil lit or transactional work or something like that, right? He does all litigation and a variety of different kinds of litigation. But really, if I had to pick his areas of expertise, I would tell you he is an expert in products liability injury you know catastrophic injury and now he's become an absolute expert on electronic data theft which is oh, becoming really? a really a big deal, big deal especially, especially with family law family law and right. especially zoom and all those other things that are going on i can only imagine um so as far as the the structure of the business building it up i mean was that was that blind ambition was there was there a lot of consulting that went into that what i mean it wasn't blind. It was absolutely intentional. I mean, I think every year or two, we sat down and and we, Ben is sort of like my muse in this regard. We, we would just like be fascinated with the concept of growing and what we wanted to achieve. And we would tweak the business plan, but we always had a plan. Yeah. I always have had a plan since day one. The plan always evolves. But I think if you start without a plan, then it is you're just flying blind. Well, sure. If you don't know where the finish line is, it's hard to finish the race. But it, it, where would you say you're at in the plan? Is there still more to come, or are you pretty? Have For you sure. fulfilled your plan as far as the size of your business and the types of things that you're wanting to do? You know, I've always said I thought that the ideal size for us would be somewhere between 25 and 35 lawyers. I think when you get much bigger than that, you start to deal with bureaucracy and other things that are not appealing Dilute to me. Dilute the brand yeah. and everything else. And just from a management perspective, you know, I like to be able to be the decision maker. While I'm sharp and I'm moving quickly in my life, I like being the decision maker and so far so good. I, I do things by committee from time to time, but ultimately the buck stops with me. But Does that mean before, older, over and above? I mean, are, are you the one making most of the decisions? Yes. Or Okay. Then yeah. that's, he that's... has entrusted decision-making 
to me okay. and, and, and business planning and other things in that regard. He's in the long term, he has really entrusted me with that stuff. And you don't show it uh, outwardly, but how do you handle that? Do you have issues with anxiety? I've got massive issues with anxiety, both to the my biology, my upbringing, uh, my environment, the type of work that I do. You know, it's not easy to do when you're. Well, look, we're gonna we're gonna make a sharp right turn here. Sure. I mean, like I, I grew up with a a crazy parent. So when you deal with the kind of crazy that I dealt with as a kid, you have only a few paths available yeah. to you. One is, you know, you fold and you can become kind of a psychological mess. Right. Which then you end up in therapy for years and years trying to kind of figure out. You can't out. see my hand raised, but yeah. I know what you're talking about. I mean, about. it happens, yeah. you know. And <laughs> and every sibling in a family like that, depending on where you are in the line and what's going on. Are you the oldest on, of the three? I'm the oldest You have of a the sister three. and then Matt. Correct. So I met two of the three. All right, go ahead. And then, you know, or you learn how to navigate, right? Yeah. And so I think I became very adept at almost tuning in to somebody else's emotional Empathetic, state. Empathetic, for sure, yeah. Because I had a mother who you just, you were on eggshells all the time. Was there any substance in there? I, both my parents were alcoholics, and so... No, actually, okay. my household was devoid of substance. Oh, really? Uh, my parents were not drinkers. They okay. were not pot smokers or drug abusers or even drug users or medication takers. Okay. And quite frankly, my mother probably could have benefited from some medication, in my opinion. Who knows? Because... You're talking about now a 70-something-year-old person who is undiagnosed. Was faith strong in your upbringing? Was it a, a, a very uh, religious family or not really? didn't feel... I mean, you know, my, my parents purported to be kind of religious in the Jewish faith. You know, we were all bar mitzvahed or bat mitzvahed. We went to Hebrew school. We did all that stuff. But I never felt like a strong sense of faith in that sense. I developed my own sense of spirituality and faith as I got older. Right. And it took some of that. I felt like it was more cultural than it was religious and dogmatic in my house. Right, right, right. Do you think your uh, the the divorce you mentioned, the first marriage, did that impact at all the way that you uh, practice family law? No. Did getting remarried and your current marriage impact the way that you practice family law? Yes. Did having children impact the way that you practice family law? Oh my god, law? yes. Very much so, right? Yes. We both have Estella, which I yeah. love. What's your boy's name? Jack. Jack. I have Bo, and you, we both have Estella. Um, they're about the same age. I think yours are a little bit older. But, you know, one of the things that I hated before I had kids is people would always say, when you have kids, you'd understand. And I'm like, I'm a smart person. I understand nuance. I'll, I'll, I understand that they're important and they're a lot of work and you love them and all this other stuff. And then I had kids. I was like, oh, I didn't have any fucking clue what I was talking right. about. Um, so uh, and, and around that time when I uh, had my daughter, a buddy of mine who was an attorney, he actually got sent to prison for drug trafficking or not drug trafficking. He accepted the prescription narcotics in exchange for payment as his twins were being born. Oh. And I ended up taking that case because it just reached down into my gut and pulled it out, and I just felt so morally convicted about it because in that situation, actually the wife was as well, but she got a diversion program because she was the one that was pregnant. He went to prison, and now he's out, and we've had this whole custody deal. But, uh, yeah, the kid having the kid thing really kind of turned up the stakes in my, especially cases with kids, obviously. I can't stand custody fights well i've had this conversation at length with your brother a lot yeah. we were uh, both big fans and talking a lot about that divorce story movie or whatever it was on netflix i don't know if you saw it did you see it mm -hmm. he's watched it like 10 times already and so we talk about it but he's he's really big on you know changing the way that it's done yeah, i mean it's it's like some hyperbole when you watch it but it really does highlight this this problem that is very systemic in our system where 
people put their own needs and wants above the needs and wants of their children, and their children get totally fucked up in the process. Yeah. I mean, we know now, scientifically, that divorce has an impact on children no matter what. Oh, for sure. Right? Just like living in an unhealthy oh, marriage. Oh, parents screaming at Correct. each other. Even passive-aggressive behavior in Correct. front of the children. Yeah. And so, you know, people just cannot get out of their own way in this regard. I have one case. It lingers. It's never going to stop. These people have an eight-year-old. They were never married. And the mother literally looks, who's, she's on the other side. Mm -hmm. She looks for every single excuse to take away a minute mm -hmm. from the father. Right. And the father is, you know, he is by nature, he is a fighter. This is not a guy who backs down from a something. Lot of the people, he struggles. This is another point. Sorry, to, yeah. I, I want to hear the rest of that story. But the type of practice that you run, I would guess that you have a lot of alpha personalities because of your financial acumen i think a lot of higher dollar divorce cases kind of end up at your firm and generally speaking people with those sorts of incomes are that way because of their personality yes. not always but a lot of times and with that personality comes a lot of extra hand holding or whatever you want to call it but you really have got to stroke egos and kind of modulate uh behaviors with with those people which i don't begrudge no you about yeah so well, i'll tell you I, i've I was talking about this the other day, and what I've noticed is that something happens to people when they hit a certain net worth threshold. Yeah. And I see far more extreme behavior of people who are, you know, over the $50 million of net worth yeah. um, line because you just, th these people are able to pay to insulate themselves from the problems they create. Sounds they are, like somebody. I, yeah. Who, they, who, they are yeah. not told no. Yeah. They don't like to be told no. Um, you know, and then I've seen people that are at that level that are the most humane, rational, cool people. Right. But I do, I do see people kind of go off the deep end when yeah. they get there. Yeah. Um, so as far as the alienation thing though, I mean, have you thought about what part you play in changing that or how you could, I mean, how you go about that? Do you do that with the legislature? Do you do that on the local level? Do you do that just through your daily practice and how you run your firm. Well, you know, my brother and I have been talking philosophically about this for a very long time. Really what happened is, you know, we had this legal system, right, which was designed to fix people's property disputes and contract disputes and all the rest of it. And then at some point, family law and divorce became an issue and they just overlaid this civil justice system on top of the family law system. Yeah. So, okay, we'll solve our problems in family law in the same type of process that we solve these other things. And I think we are long, long, long overdue for a complete overhaul of that entire concept. I frankly think the custody issue should be immediately pulled out of the court system altogether, put into some sort of a therapeutic, mental health-driven system right. where people can be yanked out of this positional, you know, fighting mentality right. before it starts. Right, right. Because the second it starts, and I do think lawyers play a huge role in this, because the biggest problem, you know, a family law case is the classic prisoner's dilemma, right? We're better off if we both just cooperate. Right. The best outcome is if we're all cool. Right. But one person with one, you know, unscrupulous attorney or a greedy attorney or self-interested attorney will exacerbate the problems and create a fight. And then the other side has no, no choice. No other choice. And but now the... what do you end up with? The shittiest possible outcome. Right. Right. And, and no one making any money but the attorneys or the... And I just don't believe that there's a real, you know, fix. Like, there's no going back. Once two people tear each other's guts out 
and their children are in the middle of that fight. You can't put them back in. You can't go back. And it begets, it beget, it perpetuates that behavior generationally. I think. I mean, no doubt about it. You know, I, 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 I'm trying to think if this is politically correct, but I have, in my life, found that uh, females, especially, the relationship with their father has a huge impact on you know, kind of their relationships, what, how they feel that they should be treated, what sort of respect that they feel that they deserve or don't deserve. And so, you know, one of the things my wife and I always try and do is make sure that the kids see me doing everything. You know, there's no mom's duties or dad's duties. There's no hierarchy of who does what. You know, everybody does everything. Everybody's treated the same. There is none of that more traditional kind of father at the top and then and down from there. But I totally agree, and we know now, the science has now told us that effectively, for whatever reason, right, your daughter's self-esteem, and to a large extent, your son's self-esteem, if you have a son, right. comes from the dad. Yeah, yeah. And why that is, I don't fully understand, you know, but we know that, you know, girls who don't have a good relationship with their fathers are more likely to have early pregnancy, be in abusive relationships, low self-esteem, anxiety problems. I mean, the science is out there. Right. I mean, to me, the best thing that's happened in the last five or so years is that the topic of mental health and the topic of therapy is no longer an ugly topic. Taboo, right? We're now sure, all yeah. talking about it. Yeah. Famous people, professional athletes, everybody's coming out and saying, look, I take medication or I have an anxiety problem or I have depression. Now that mental health is coming to the forefront as an acceptable topic, I foresee it'll take more time than I want it to, but I foresee that that conversation is going to continue inside of the family law system, and hopefully we're going to evolve and get these screwed up situations out of the court system and into a therapeutic setting. Well, much in the same way, and I promised myself in getting ready for this interview that I wasn't going to mention the Netflix movie 13th because I mentioned it the last six or seven interviews. and. I just have you seen this movie? No, but somebody just mentioned it to me okay. yesterday. Uh, so basically, I'm going to tell you the people who've listened have heard me say this a thousand times. But it talks about how the Thirteenth Amendment turned slavery into incarceration, and how there was a carve out, you know, for now if you can criminalize things, you can you can get indentured servitude through the prison system instead of whatever else. And it was talking <clears throat> about how certain behavior that was uh, more pervasive in, in minority communities was made criminalized or at least punished to a much greater degree. And, and this is how they kind of built up the system. But the, the big thing there was they shouldn't have treated drug uh, abuse and use as a criminal matter. They should have treated it as a health matter. And so there's a lot of similarities I see to what you're talking about with parenting and, and these sorts of issues that instead of making it a legal matter, if it could be made a health matter Correct. and addressed that way, it would dial down a lot of the, the, the war that we have going on. I don't know if that's kind of what the thinking was behind collaborative. Uh, I kind of have a hot and cold view of collaborative. I don't know your opinion on it. I, I really like it. To me, however, it really is for people with very significant financial resources to really do it correctly right. and to have skilled people do it the right way it's expensive yeah you know um there i would love to see some of the resources that go into the judicial system be diverted into a mental health framework right for people who are not able to spend the money on all of these private mental health professionals and private financial professionals and you know private attorneys yeah yeah um 
going from there, well, so how, kind of switching gears here a little bit, uh, in the age of COVID, how has it changed the way that you're practicing law? I think you mentioned to me a little bit before that uh, you, you spent some time in Utah and that, you, you know, except for some things that are going on in your life, you've largely been able to work yeah, remotely. We, we have been entirely remote until about a week or two ago. Um, and we're still largely remote and people who are coming in are coming in sporadically. We've implemented a slew of safety precautions at our office, but I think we were wise to get everybody set up to work completely from home right at the beginning of March. We kind of felt you knew where it was going. We kind of felt we needed to be prepared for that. So, you know, buying some extra monitors and printers and computers has made us, we have not missed a beat. Well, and I don't know your experience, but business is up too. I mean, you know, and I, it's sad why, but I, you know, I, I think it's because yeah. homeschooling and spending 24 seven at home with out a break and kids going crazy and all this other stuff, it's, you know, sadly impacted uh, family law. And I've noticed a big uptick in it. Yeah, I think this whole COVID thing has accelerated so many things, but yeah. it's accelerated technology. 100%. Amazingly rapid yeah. pace. But I think it accelerates and exacerbates exactly what you're talking about too. I mean, if I'm if I'm only dealing with a problem three hours a day, and then all of a sudden I'm dealing with it eighteen hours a right. day, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get to that point, that boiling point faster. One hundred percent. Well, and I'm really hoping, and I and I was having a conversation with uh, Lawrence Hodge, Christian Gibbons, Damian McKinney about who do I who do I appeal to to start to ask for status hearings to be via Zoom. Who do I appeal to? Like, I, I hope that maybe we don't come back from a lot of the ways. I mean, obviously, evidentiary hearings, trials, depositions. It's you need to be in front of the person reading do the you? face. Well, do you? I mean, you don't me, have to, but the, I, I feel there's a big disparity in in value for me. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm wondering if the entire system is long overdue for a big overhaul. I mean, there's so much that we have to file in family law cases. It's filed under oath. Right. right? Once that's filed. I mean, do I need to put somebody on the stand and ask them what their financial affidavit says? They filed it. It says right. what it says. Right. If you have them in a lie, you have them in a lie. Yeah. Um, I think for long proceedings where body language and behavior, you know, is really critical to assessing somebody's credibility, I agree. Yeah. But there's a lot of stuff now that can be, first of all, every procedural hearing should be via Zoom. Yeah. Final uncontested oh, hearings. Oh, for sure. Discovery hearings. I mean, Frankly, I long ago thought that a lot of those things could be done on the papers yeah. without having any hearing. Yeah. I think we're going to see a shift, especially amongst younger generations of judges, towards doing a lot of this stuff remotely. I love it. We're finally getting some younger <clears throat> judges in Hillsborough, although I can't tell if they're making it easier or harder. I've, I've got some new instructions on notice of hearings that we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. and You know what I'm talking about? Yes. And then there's a, there's a lot of new blood over in Pinellas County, um, so... Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely hoping that it goes that way. Um, you know, obviously we don't want to be made obsolete, but there's definitely a different way that we could be uh, running it. Um, so just for people, you know, I don't know much about you other than what we talk about on seeing you in the courthouse. What do you what What's your thing outside of law? I mean, do you are you a sports guy? Are you an art guy? Are you a music guy? Are you, what's your thing? Other I'm than I like all those things. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm kind of a, a jack of all trades, master of none. I I love music. I love art. I love ba- basketball. So yeah. it was a passion. You and your brother growing up. Yeah. yeah, we came from a basketball family. You know, you have little kids, so your kids become a huge focus. Love outdoors. That's why we are in Utah. I'm an avid skier. Now, is that place, is it ski and ski out, or is it, it is close not. by? Okay. It is about 15, 20 minutes from the base of the ski mountains. 
in a big community that's I've got seen some pictures because your wife and, and I are friends on Facebook, yeah. which you're not smartly on Facebook, mm -hmm. but yeah, um, that's that's amazing. Uh, so a couple other things I wanted to talk to you about before I let you go. Um, one thing that I've always wondered about, and, and I don't know if this is something you thought about, but with your brand, the size of your, your firm in the community, I've been surprised that you guys haven't, and maybe you haven't, I'm just not aware of it, gotten more involved into the personal injury or injury community. Is that something that you've thought about doing toyed with? I mean, are you doing it? Yes, we are doing it. We typically handle cases of significant injury and yeah. we're not doing $10,000. We are not designed to, to operate in a high volume personal injury capacity. Frankly, I don't want to do it. Yeah. There are things about it that just kind of rub me the wrong, the way, wrong yeah. way. I don't begrudge anybody who does it. I think it's a business. It's a legitimate business. Right. But the only way to really make that business go is to do a lot of those. Yeah. It's just not for us. So <clears throat> we have focused on significant injury cases and we've probably always got about somewhere between a dozen and a dozen and a half of those going well, on. I mean, that's, and is Rick, Rick the one who handles those? Rick handles them. Now, I heard some point along the way, and I don't know if this is true or not, did you also have some sort of collections operation that was going on? We do. Ben and I have a separate firm that does What's uh, that called? collections. It's called o l Law Group. Is it run out of that same office? No. It's, oh. it's actually close to here. Is it really? It, well, it will be. It's on Columbus. How long has that been around? We've been doing that now for 10, 12 years, I think. And how did you get into that? Uh, we originally got into the business with another company of buying up charged-off consumer debt. Okay, yeah. And then we ended up kind of forming a, law, a small law firm around that, and that law firm has really taken off. Oh, wow. So is there a whole other set of attorneys that work there? Yes, and... there's three attorneys and probably 12 or 15 staff. Oh, my God. So yeah. it's not yeah, it's... it's not a small operation. I was talking to a colleague and something that they're doing in PI now, and I don't even know how where it falls on the uh, spectrum of the rules of ethics, but... Uh, people are doing like loans for for yeah. PI cases now. Like attorneys are doing that, yes. which uh, <clears throat> as a as a plaintiff's attorney, I would have to imagine insurance defense companies would have a heyday with that. If you're in a trial and asking about if the attorney had some money riding on the case that they were litigating, well, I don't think the lawyer who is on the case can, can do it. It's, the money. Okay. it's always a separate separate lawyer, yeah. but still, it just uh, I don't know. It seems like it's a a blot on your case that's it's unneeded. hard money lending. Yeah, I mean, it's just another form of hard money lending. Right, right, right. right. So the two stories uh, that I recall, uh, one I'm going to name the attorney of was Sandy Solomon, and I was actually involved in this case because I represented an interested third party in this case, and we were in court, and it was you and Sandy and others, and, and I've since heard that you guys have are cordial with each other, or rang out, or, but this hearing was the most beautiful thing I ever witnessed because there was no procedure going on. Both of you were standing up. Both of you were talking to the judge, and I think the judge was just so in awe of what was going on. The judge was letting it happen, and it turned into this hour-long diatribe between the two of you. And before I knew you, I knew Sandy because my wife worked for him, so I heard all these stories. But that that that's one story. I don't know if you remember the case that I'm talking about. I do. Okay. And then there was another case where uh, it was you and Jessica, and it was two female attorneys on the other side, and I think it was Judge Thomas, but I'm not sure. But in the in the middle of the motion, I think Jessica was running first chair. You stood up and started making an argument. And the other attorney said, he can't come in midway through. And you're like, no, that's when you're questioning a witness. That's not the rule. Sit down. And this attorney's much older than you and well-known in the community. And she just sat down and you kept going. And Judge Thomas just looked at you and had the most pleased smile in the world on her face. And 
I just, you know, watching people carry themselves in a courtroom, there's kind of a, if you can be confident past a certain degree, and I'm not saying this is you, but you can almost get away with Oh, no doubt Anything. about it. You know, I, I've just seen so Listen, many, you know. You know, Ron Reed, to me, was really the master of that. You you just, you felt that whatever he said, it must be correct. Yeah. He just had that tone. He was so kind, and he just kind of. Oh, he was a sneaky. Well, but, but, sure, but but he comes guy. across as your grandfather, Absolutely. like he's going to give you a piece of hard candy. I always joked, kind of... he looked like Bilbo Baggins to me. Oh, for sure. Okay? He actually and, looked like my grandmother, which is another and, story. And totally. he took this medication, I think it was heart medication, yeah. or blood pressure, and his hand was always shaking. Yeah. It was so disarming, Yeah. right? And in the meantime, that guy was a class A sniper. Yeah. I mean, he was yeah. awesome in the yeah. courtroom. But, um, you know, I mean, Sandy, I have great respect for Sandy. He's a super smart guy. He's incredibly aggressive. I don't always agree with his litigation strategy. Um, but I will tell you that, you know, that proceeding that you were in, I remember it quite well, you know, is one of the things that drives me crazy. Well, that's about very the much system. the type of story you were telling me. I, I was even wondering if that might have been the same right. case. I mean, how, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, great. These two aggressive, confident, articulate guys went at it and it was fun to watch from an academic perspective, but, but not good for the families clients. and children. And, you know, it is the judge's responsibility ultimately to control that. When I, I have had some proceedings with him and with lawyers like him. And if the judge is not firm and in control, the two it's of us end up just chaos, yeah. battling. And at the end of the day, is that really what's best for people? But what choice no. do you have? Prisoner's dilemma, right? Well, if for he's sure. going to do that, I got to do it. Well, it's fun to watch for sure. I, I have, you know, I have you and Ted Rochelle are my troubled client person that I referred to. Like someone feels that they're not getting the, the full court press. They don't feel like they're getting the full service. They want a quote unquote bulldog. Usually the, those are the, the two ways that I go with that. And, and you're set up to do it. I mean, there's part of it is your acumen in the courtroom and part of it is the way your business is set up. Yes. You know, I always love when I have cases against associates at other firms and they come in with all this case law. I'm like, oh, that's cute that you have case law. I had to pay the mortgage and Make right. sure that you know the tenants <laughs> paid their rent and that the trash was taken out. You right. got the full case law, so definitely a different thing. Well, I really appreciate you coming by. My I know pleasure. you're a busy man. Uh, you know, now we got to get your sister in so that I can I can get the oh. trifecta. Does she live locally or? I my sister lives in Boca. Oh yeah, How my brother you? lives down there in Parkland. My sister lives in Boca. Does she have your number or is she is she? I can get you her contact. No, I mean sure. I mean, does she kind of control you and Matt or who's? who's oh no, not who's the all. alpha of the three of you? Because Matt's pretty. I was surprised. Matt was much more low-key than I expected him to you know, be. I mean, it's weird when you have such an age gap. So I'm five years older than Amy and eight years older than Matthew. So I think I was definitely the alpha growing up, but my brother is an alpha. And my sister. Is he really? We all are. Yeah. You had to. Alphas. You yeah. had to to survive in my house. It's funny because yeah. I didn't get any of that through talking to him. I don't know if if he, you know, yeah, I mean, look, like talk all three about of it us or... are entrepreneurial. Yeah. All three of us own our own businesses. All three of us, I think, have been very successful in our businesses. And uh, it's, you know, ironically has to be credited to my parents who yeah. are pretty brutal. Right. Well, yeah. you're doing something right. But thank Thanks, you so much man. for coming in. I really appreciate it. My pleasure.